Well, we have, um, we have spent the uh, first four weeks of 2020 talking about first things first. And these have been, um, for me, heart-warming um, and convicting uh, sermons is we talk about things that we just we can't by any measure be good Christ followers if we're not increasing in our prayer life, if we're not uh, engaging with heart, soul, mind, body, strength, voice in worship, if we are not committed to the Word, and today, if we're not committed to witness. Here's, here's something, just kind of talking about the facts, where we're at today. I don't think anyone would deny that when we talk about evangelism or we talk about witness, the church, not just our church, the church worldwide, has been relatively apathetic. Relatively apathetic. Would anybody disagree with that? There's more that we could do. Now, we have been apathetic personally, right? There are ways in all of these things. Worship, prayer, word, witness. We could all do better. But I want to let you know the effect of our apathy. And this is a side, this is a side sidebar. We don't despise evangelism. We, we just don't do it. But our children, specifically millennials, millennials are defined as people born between 1981 and 1996. So they're about 23 to 39. So basically, 20 and 30-year-olds, Christian 20 and 30-year-olds, when they were surveyed by Christianity Today, on evangelism, 70% of church-going millennials believe it is wrong to share your faith because they have grown up in a pluralistic, relativistic society. Hey, what's true for you is true for you, and what is true for me is true for me. So you take the apathy of their parents and their grandparents and then the relativism of a culture that says there is no such thing as truth. What do you have? You have a church that never shares the gospel again. The only hope is that we keep our kids in church, which statistics prove there's not a lot of hope in that direction as well. So here's what I want to do this morning. When we talk about witness, I have heard all kinds of preachers that try to guilt people into sharing the gospel. You know how effective that is? It works for about a week, and then you're right back in the thing. Listen, we have a privilege to, to talk about the Lord. And so, for whatever reason, I think we have, made, we have made evangelism, like you have to go to Bible college to do evangelism. Not true. You have to be a Bible scholar to share the gospel. Not true. Um, you have to have special training to share the gospel. Helpful, but not necessary. And I think in some ways, we have overcomplicated what talking about Jesus is all about. You always know what is important to somebody. Listen, if you get a deal, if you go out and buy a new car and you get a deal, guess what you tell everybody? Man, you won't believe the deal I got on this new car. And all you did was maybe save a couple hundred dollars, maybe a thousand bucks, and you are evangelizing, you are telling the good news about the discount that you got. Oh, I've heard, uh, this is a silly illustration, I've heard Mr. Sammy and Mr. Wayne on our Wednesday night meals talk about, man, you won't believe the deal that we got this week because uh, they, they do such a good job administrating their funds for our Wednesday night meal 
and they can't help but share good news when they're able to pull off an awesome meal for $2.30 a person. And all God's people said, amen. <laughs> Listen, if the um, national championship football game would have turned out just a little bit differently, you think anybody would have been, been talking about it? We got a little humility from, from that one, you know. We're not able to celebrate quite the way that we, we wanted to. And so here's the question for you. I'm not asking how you're going to change the world. How, how are we going to go, you know, fill every nook and cranny of the world with the gospel? Here's my question for you for 2020. Do you have one person? One person that you're praying for. One person that you want to be accountable to before the year is over to have done whatever you can to share the gospel with them. One person. Now listen, if you're an overachiever and you knock out your first person in the first quarter of 2020, we'll ask you, all right, who's your number two? But let's just focus on, let's just focus on one. Because you know what? I can do that. You can do that. So we're going to go to one of my favorite passages of the Bible. Um, it is so rich. And yet there is, Dan talked about the lullaby problem last week. When it's a story that you've heard before, you know, you will allow familiarity to make you doze off. Don't doze off on John chapter 4. The woman of the, uh, the, the story about the Samaritan woman. And so we're going to look at this. We're going to draw really three points out of this that really are describing what's happening in the story. Very conversational. It's a, it's a narrative about, about Jesus' journey. And then we're going to draw out some conclusions and applications. And I, I trust, I trust if our hearts are in the right place, we won't hear this as um, guilt-inducing. Because listen, you can do evangelism in your own strength. I don't recommend it. It's not fruitful. And it's not fun. But evangelism in the Spirit of God is both easy and delightful. It's a wonderful thing. And so I, I want that to be our, our motive here today. In the same way that we talk about deals that we get, or championships that our team wins, or fortuitous circumstances, can we talk with the same kind of passion about the best thing that's ever happened to us? I think that we can. I think that we can. Well, listen, when, when it comes to our apathy with evangelism, I think there are, there's a variety of excuses that we use. Um, I don't know enough. Listen, if you don't know enough, what should you do? You should learn. Buy a book on evangelism. Talk to a Sunday school teacher or a deacon. Come to a pastor. Uh, attend a class. Join up when we do. Uh, we don't do anything on Sunday nights uh, officially. We do evangelism almost every Sunday night. I heard a statistic here. It was, it was amazing. It explained some things about the immediate neighborhood that we, uh, that we live in right here. Um, went to a, a demographic research thing with the YBA this week. And uh, do you know what the number one housing unit is in our immediate one-mile vicinity? Vacant. Almost three to one occupied. Vacant. Most of the houses around us are vacant. Uh, the next thing that is most um, highly interesting about it is they're almost all rental properties. Which means if you have knocked on the doors in our neighborhood, listen, I've knocked on every door within this, on this side of Dave Lyle probably half a dozen times in the last year. 
And every time I knock on the door, it's a different person there because they don't stay very long. And so if you say, that's, that's both a good thing and a bad thing. Even if we were reaching them, they're not going to stay long. But the good news is, every time we knock on a door, there's a new person there that needs to hear the gospel. So don't, 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 don't say, I've been there and I've done that. People give up all these, well, I've tried that. But there's two things that I usually hear nowadays. And in verses 1 through 6 of John chapter 4, Jesus absolutely explodes the myth of being too busy or too tired to be involved in evangelism. You ever hear that excuse? Man, I just don't, I don't know where I'm going to find the time. I'm just too busy. Man, you know, work just takes it out of me. I'm, I'm too tired. Listen, if you're too tired to share the gospel, you need to see a doctor. You're too tired to be alive. Go get help. Take a pill. Drink caffeine. Do something. Obey the Lord. Do whatever you need to to obey the Lord. So listen to verses 1 through 6. John chapter 4. Turn back a page. There we go. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist, parentheses, although Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he had left Judea and departed again for Galilee. I think that's interesting. So we're, we're finding the news story. Um, Jesus is increasing. John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase. That's what's happening. Jesus is becoming more popular. John the Baptist is just kind of fading into the background. And Jesus is now baptizing more, more disciples than John is. And then they have to put that parentheses in there that, hey, Jesus wasn't the one baptizing. It was actually his disciples. Why do you think that is? Anyone have a curiosity about that? Do you know how pompous you would be if Jesus baptized you besides Peter? Well, I got baptized by the man himself. You just got baptized by Peter, lowly little John. And so I think it's interesting that Jesus recognized the competitive nature that we have, that we try to make ourselves look better, that Jesus didn't do the baptizing. He allowed his disciples to do it all. And so Jesus knows that the Pharisees are hearing about his popularity. And it says in verse 3 that he left Judea and de departed again for Galilee. Judea in the south, Galilee in the north. Verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour couple things we learned here. Number one, why is Jesus journeying? The scripture tells us plainly. The Pharisees had heard that Jesus was increasing in popularity, and the Pharisees didn't like it. So Jesus says, there's a confrontation coming, and now is not the time. So Jesus is, uh, we don't like to think of it like this, but Jesus is on the run. He's on the run. He is not scared. He is not, he is not, um, he is not worried. He is not any of those things. But he knows that there is a time for this to happen. And the time is not yet. And if he stays, he's going to press the clock uh, prematurely. And so he says, you know what, we're going we're gonna to go. We're going to do ministry somewhere else. And so Jesus is on the run from the religious authorities. There's a long and bitter history between Jews and Samaritans. Samaritans were... Um, half-blooded Jews. In 722, when Assyria came in and conquered Israel, 
um, the Assyrians deported all of the people of, um, subst- of substance. If you were um, of the upper crust, you were deported. The people that they left behind were the people that they considered nobodies. And so uh, Israel was decimated. You had uh, no industry, no leadership, no government. You had literally the leftovers. And then Assyria had this, in- this terrible policy of taking lands that they conquered, taking the best of the best, like Daniel and his friends, and then bringing other conquered people to populate that. So they would make it very multicultural. And so Jews who were very proud of their lineage were forced, uh, not forced by like sword point, but sourced by circumstance to intermarry with these pagan peoples that were around them. And so they, they lost the purity of their Jewish blood. And so Samaritans by Jews were not considered to be Jews at all. As a matter of fact, uh, Jews did all that they could to avoid Samaria. It's interesting that Jesus says that he had to pass through Samaria. Two things about that. Number one, Samaria was the most direct route. So if he's looking for the most expedient way to get out of town, it is the most expedient way. Most Jews probably would see the second route a little bit longer as the most expedient way because then you didn't have to deal with those pesky Samaritans. Jesus is experiencing a popularity that is about to precipitate a conflict. And he says, we must pass through Samaria. I don't think this is the expediency of fleeing. I think as the story bears out, we find out what the expediency was. Jesus had an appointment that his disciples didn't know about. But think about this. Jesus is on the run. He is, um, he is um, marching quickly with his, his merry band of disciples. And it says that he uh, comes to Jacob's well at about the sixth hour. And it says very clearly, he was um, wearied as he was from his journey. There was uh, emotional pressure. There was uh, physical exhaustion. And it's noon. It's the oddest part of the day. He is exhausted. He is traveling at a steady clip. He is trying to flee from religious persecution. He is tired. And he is busy. And for most of us, that means... I'm done with church stuff. There's no sharing that's going to happen today. I'm too busy. I'm too tired. And yet, as circumstances would dictate, as Jesus had the opportunity to simply engage in a conversation, He faithfully took it. In verses 7 through 26, we see some interesting things about um, this encounter where Jesus sets an example for personal evangelism. I'm going to read it in its entirety, verses 7 through 26. Now a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Verse 8 is a parenthetical. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, because of the hostilities between Jews and Samaritans, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Two strikes against her. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Well, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to 
eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. That's the biggest understatement in the Bible. Either that or he's a private investigator. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you, you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming, He who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Long passage. Very interesting. And it's not rocket science. If we're going to engage in um, gospel sharing, witnessing, evangelizing, there, there, there is a truth, and it's a pesky truth, because uh, we, don't, we don't like this word, and it's, 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 it's a newer word. It, uh, when you were growing up, when you were active in the workforce, you probably didn't, didn't use this word, but I think you'll understand what it means. In your life, wearing all of the many hats that you wear as parent, spouse, child, mother, you know, uh, grandparent, uh, employee, neighborhood, na- living in a neighborhood, if you're going to engage with people, you have to create a little bit of margin. A little bit of margin. If you are too busy to be a good neighbor, you are too busy. If you are too busy to be an obedient follower of Jesus Christ, you are too busy. If you are too busy to be a good husband or wife, you are too busy. This is not just good for evangelism. This is good for every area of life. If you're too busy to see your grandkids, you're too busy. Like anything that is a priority in life, if we're going to be faithfully committed to evangelism, we've got to create a little bit of margin. Here's how Jesus demonstrates that. Jesus is waiting at the well. His disciples have gone into town to go get food. And instead of kind of sitting, sitting on the palm tree, you know, with his little cowboy hat tipped down, you know, taking a little siesta in the middle of the afternoon and ignoring a woman who is simply doing what she does every day, coming to the well for water. Instead of ignoring her, what does he do? All of verse 7 through 26, what happens there? It's a dialogue. It's a dialogue. It's not, hey. No, there's a conversation that takes place. If you're too busy to have a conversation with people about Jesus, you are too busy. He just simply talks to her. I love the fact that where, where is Jesus hanging out while his disciples are gone? The water cooler. The break room. Now, he may not have been expecting someone. It, it, it's kind of odd for someone to come draw water at noon. It makes a whole lot better sense. Like, if you're going to cut your grass, do you wait till noon to do it? 
No, you do it early in the morning. You do it later in the afternoon when maybe it's a little bit cooler. Uh, Same with drawing water. And so because of some things that we'll find out from this woman, some shame and some guilt in her standing in society, she probably came at noon because she expected not to run into anybody, which might be why Jesus was waiting for her is he knew he could have a private conversation with her by herself, not dealing with any of the ostracization of uh, her community. So Jesus breaks convention. Number one, it's a man talking to a woman, which not only in his day, but sometimes in our, in our day, that was inappropriate. So he breaks with convention, with social norms. He asks her for a drink, and she's kind of taken back by that. But what does he do? He takes the initiative. I've heard people, nobody has said it like this, but I have heard people express this. Well, you know what? My next-door neighbors, they see me get up every Sunday morning. I've got a coat and tie on. They know that I go to church. If they want to find out about God, they can just come talk to me. If they want it, it's their responsibility to come talk to me. Right? Thumbs up. Thumbs down. Well, that's not, that's not, that's not how we're supposed to engage that. It's not sit and wait. It's go and tell. And so we, we cannot wait for people who are blinded by the enemy who do not know the truth to come to a, re- they're not going to come to a realization of the truth if we don't take the initiative. That's where this whole margin thing comes in. Jesus takes the initiative to say, hey, can I have, can I have a water? Can, I, can you give me something to drink? Uh, it, it, it's interesting, Jesus says, hey, by the way, while we're on this water thing, if you really knew who I was, you'd ask me for a drink, not a physical water, but a spiritual water, and it will quench every thirst that you have. He makes this compelling comment. He doesn't just say, hey, can I have a drink? He, he uses that as a launching, launching pad for, hey, how do we transition this, this conversation into something more significant? Jesus doesn't shy away from personal issues. Now, listen, you can't do what Jesus did here. Like, Jesus knew she'd been married five times. Like, you don't know that about the cashier at Publix. You don't know that about the person at uh, Bilo or at Harris Teeter. Jesus is God. He's got personal knowledge. But he does two things that really are not super friendly. He, he kind of confronts her personal lifestyle. And then it's interesting. He's like, you know what? You're right. You don't have a husband because you're not married to the guy that you're shacking up with. And you've been married five times before. Not the most polite um, first-time conversation kind of talk. Then she goes, I, well, I perceive you're a prophet. So then she throws up a smokescreen. Well, you know, if we're going to talk about religion, you know, we think you should worship here, you think we should worship there, which one is it? it she is trying her best to get the conversation off of herself. And Jesus says, hey, you know what, that's really not that important because Jerusalem doesn't really matter. And neither does your mountain. Because God wants people who worship in spirit and truth and he doesn't really care about where you're at. He just cuts right through the smoke screen. Wants to get it back on her. Um, it's easier to talk theology than it is to live it out. She got real interested in worship when she probably hadn't been to synagogue in a long time just because of where she stood in society. And so I love it because the one who is offering the water of life proves to be light as well as he exposes things. You know what? Your, your life isn't probably what you thought it was going to be. You know, you, you graduate from um, Saturday school, this is a Jew, Shabbat school. Did you think you'd be married five times by the time you were 35? No? Yeah, life didn't turn out the way that you thought it would. Um, were you a pretty pious worshiper in your past? Yes. But Jesus, who is the one who gives water, proves to be light as he exposes 
her loneliness, her restlessness, and her desperate seeking for belonging. She's so desperate to belong, she'll belong to anybody that'll have her. That's why she's been married five times and is apparently given up on marriage and just living with a guy that would, was willing to have her under his roof. It's interesting. Jesus comes in weakness as a, as a person to talk about a gift that God has to offer to all who are willing to receive it. It elicits a question. Who are you? Are you greater than our, our father Abraham? Are you greater than, than Jacob? What is this thirst that you're talking about that, that will be quenched and can't be quenched by morality or by, by law-keeping? And so Jesus has created some margin in His life. He has gone to a place where, where it, it, it is a byway, it is an intersection where he might run into people. It's possible that the Samaritan woman never showed up and Jesus did get a little siesta at, at, the, at the well. That's not what happened. And I think that this is the reason that he said, we must go through Samaria. We're not going to take the Jordan River route. We're going to go through Samaria because I have an appointment. And he creates a margin to, to be able to hang out at a place where people might be. And then when they show up, he takes the initiative to begin a dialogue. Not a monologue. Hey, listen, let me, now that I've got you captive, let me tell you everything that you need to know. Dialogue. One of the things that I'm just so grateful to God for, in our second service, there'll be a young man, um, 34 years old. And I met him last year because his uh, stepfather committed suicide. And the first time that I met him was at the funeral. Not a believer, um, bartender, um, a very terrible addiction history. And every Friday on my day off, we meet in Charlotte because he lives in Matthews. And he has questions about how do we really know that the Bible is true? Because if he doesn't trust that the Bible is true, he'll never come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And so we, we meet for Bible study, and we're engaging in a dialogue because I, I, I can't answer all of his questions at one time. He, he's grown up his entire life apart from the church. He doesn't know church words. He doesn't know what a Galatian is. He doesn't know what the big numbers and the little numbers are in your Bible. And so many, so many times we treat evangelism like a project, like a one and done. Like, I'm going to come down. I'm going to monopolize the conversation for 45 minutes. Paul doesn't get to say anything. And at the end, I'm like, you ready? And if you've not grown up in church, you're not ready. You've got questions. And so there's nothing wrong with sharing the gospel and immediately calling for demand. God still saves people that way. I mean, you can meet somebody on the elevator, and they are going to hell when you on floor one, and by the time you get to floor three, they're a citizen of the kingdom. I don't think that's the way it happens for everybody, though. And Jesus sets a faithful example of personal evangelism. Here's the thing that's crazy. The Samaritan woman sets an example for personal evangelism. Listen to verses 28 through 30, and then verses 39 through 42 to see the results. Uh, 28 through 30 says this. Uh, well, here it is. So the woman left her water jar. I find that interesting. The whole reason she came to the well was to get water, and she forgets about her concerns. She leaves her, her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town. They went out of the town and were coming to him. Verses 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Why? Because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. 
So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with, with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of Jesus' word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. I want to give you six reasons quickly why this woman is unqualified to be an evangelist. If we could take ourselves back into um, Jesus' era, the first century, and it was our responsibility to be the committee that elected someone to be an evangelist, who would we pick? Well, I'll tell you, first of all, we would not pick a woman. She's the wrong gender. In that society that was patriarchal, um, women were considered property. Uh, their, their testimony was not admissible in a court of law. The last person that you would pick would be someone who was a woman to, to be a testifier to Jesus. She's the wrong gender. Number two, she's the wrong ethnicity. She's not even considered a Jew because of all the intermarriage. And, you know, we don't know what your lineage is. You're, you're, a, you're a mutt, is what they would say. Wrong gender, wrong ethnicity. She has the wrong theology. She doesn't worship in Jerusalem. She doesn't do things right. She, she, she wears the wrong clothes. She does whatever. Her theology is wrong. There's no way she can be a witness. Number four, she's uneducated. Who do you want to be an evangelist? Oh, you want somebody with a Bible degree, maybe somebody who's been to seminary. You want somebody who has some kind of education, and yet this woman doesn't have any education that we can think of. Who do you want to be an evangelist? Oh, we want, we want Billy Graham. We want someone with a sterling reputation. What kind of reputation does this lady have? Maybe because of the shame of the lifestyle that she lives, she's coming to the well at noon. She didn't have a good reputation. Hey, listen, if you're going to be an evangelist, we need somebody who's had experience, who's had tenure, and yet this woman has just met Jesus. We don't even know that she's a believer yet, and she's outpacing most Christians at telling people about Jesus. No tenure, no experience, and people do not need to be fully convinced in order to be an effective witness. This woman goes, and it appears that her entire town is converted. And I want you to see the simplicity of this. All right, Jesus takes the initiative, he creates margin, he engages in a dialogue, it's not a one or done. What's the woman's example for uh, personal evangelism? It's, it's great. Three parts, three parts to the equation. Number one is a testimony. She speaks. She speaks. She gives a testimony. Number two, she uses a compelling question. Come meet a guy who's told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? No evangelism training. Personal experience. Hey, guys, I think this guy's different. There's something about him. I don't know what to say, but I think you probably should come check. Number three, enthusiasm. Testimony. Compelling question enthusiasm. And friends, I look at that list, and I don't see anyone here who is incapable of those three things. Testimony, compelling question, enthusiasm. Enthusiasm! We need a little shot of that, don't we? A little adrenaline injected into the blood. Let's get it pumping! And yet, you can already hear the mature believers saying, Samaritan woman, calm down. We don't need that. You know, you'll get over it. Settle down. Oh, shush. Don't shush enthusiasm. 
Isn't it fleeting? Weren't you enthusiastic at one point in your life? You know, when Jesus says, come back to your first love, why does he say that? Because it becomes a past tense. Was there a time that you loved the Lord, his word, the gospel, the church more? Don't shush someone that's more enthusiastic than you because it might make you look unenthusiastic. Instead, let their enthusiasm inspire you to have just a little bit more. Don't shush enthusiasm. Very simple. Testimony, compelling question. Enthusiasm. A couple conclusions and applications. In verse 27, you've got, some, you've got a blank here uh, for, for number one under point number four. And uh, just write down verse 27. Just put 27, exclamation mark. Here's the point. If you, are, if you take evangelism seriously, even other believers will think you are strange. You, need, you just need to know. If you, the culture inside our churches today is not evangelistic. And if you take evangelism seriously, people will, Christians will think you are strange. Verse 27 says this, Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled, they wondered, they questioned why he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what are you seeking? Or why are you talking with her? Why does it, they, they weren't about to correct Jesus, but they're like, bro, what you doing? Talking to a woman. They thought Jesus was odd, to say the least. Number two, you've got a couple blanks there. Your needs must be less than their needs. Your needs must be less than their needs. Specifically, your physical needs must be less than their spiritual needs. In verses 31 through 38, the, the, the disciples finally, after the woman leaves to go back to the town, they're like, hey, we got food. And Jesus is like, um, I've got food that you don't know about. And the disciples go, somebody give, somebody give the Lord something to eat? And he says, my, my food is to do God's will. And look, the fields are ripe for the harvest. And he goes into this whole thing where he says, it is more important for him, wearied and exhausted and tired as he was, it is more important for him, even when he is tired and weak and, and, and weary, to share the gospel than it is for him to get a drink. That, that preaches against every single one of us because when you're thirsty, what do you do? You drink. When you are hungry, you eat. And the problem is not that we satisfy our appetites for physical things. The problem is that our appetite for spiritual things is so puny. And Jesus says, oh, no, no, no. This is not going to be about my needs. Let's make it about their needs. What a revolutionary mindset. Number three, I just ask the question, who's your one? The challenge for people who are retired is that everyone in your circle, your sphere of influence may, may be here in this room today. Your best friends may be believers. If you do not have a one, will you let the church help? We have prospects that we can say, all right, here you go. David, take this guy and follow up with him. Find out who he is, what he is. He may be a believer, he may not. 
Maybe he's had a bad experience at church. He's been out of church for 20 years. He may not be a believer at all. Follow up. Let's help. Maybe some of our mission trips. We've got several mission trips coming up. I don't, I don't know what our plans are for Kentucky, uh, but there's a spring break trip that's going to help a church plant in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, we've got a mission trip to India that's happening this summer. Um, if that's what it takes to lever you getting out of your comfort zone to do something, who's your, who's your one? Number four, and this is an easy one, um, maybe speaking the gospel is a challenge for you, but handing out a card to invite people to church is an easy one. Where are your cards? We've got thousands of them for you to give out. When you go to a restaurant, when you go to a gas station, where you go wherever. We've got, I don't know, 200 cards here on the front row. Um, as you head to your Bible study hour, as you, before you head home, come back and grab some of those cards and, 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 and do something to increase your witness. Number five, how much time will you give? How much time will you give to evangelism? If over 2020, you gave 10 hours, 10 one-hour periods, going out knocking on doors, going to the mall, just being available in your circumstances of life, 10 hours is 10% of 10% of 10%. There's 8,760 hours in your year. 10 hours is 10% of 10% of 10%. Are you really too busy and too tired to give 10 hours to evangelism? The answer, unfortunately, for most people is yes. Way too busy to give 10 hours to evangelism. Evangelism doesn't look the same for everybody. Your, your evangelistic ministry might be writing notes. It might be um, through correspondence. It might be um, serving in some kind of ministry, whether it's the Palmetto Women's Center, whether it's the Hope House, um, whether it's the Bethel Men's Shelter, or whether it's Northside Elementary. That may be the way that you're intentionally trying to spend time with people not just to spend time with people because you want to have the opportunity to share the gospel. If you sit at home, it's not going to happen. It is not going to happen. And so my prayer today is that we look at this example, both of our Lord and of a woman that we don't even know that she knows Jesus yet. She knows about Jesus. We don't know that she has, you know, um, confessed with her mouth and believed in her heart. She's on the, re- she's on the road. And God uses her to be an amazing evangelist. What more could he do with someone who actually truly knew him? Who wasn't just prospectively enthusiastic, but actually knows the enthusiasm of having a life that's been changed by God. That's us. Evangelism is not nearly as difficult as we have made it to be. It just requires intentionality. Just a little bit of your time. Are you willing to give it? Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for entrusting us with the message of eternal life. Father, it seems like like giving car keys to a three-year-old. You've entrusted us with the gospel? Oh my goodness, almost irresponsible. But yet, Father, there are those who share and share and share, and we hear testimony of incredible things that your church is doing around the world. You are still in the business of calling men and women and boys and girls to yourself. Father, give us the privilege of being a part of that. Help us to examine our own hearts for why we don't 
Are we too busy? Are we too tired? Do we feel maybe not competent? Are we not confident enough? Help us to not use that as an objection anymore, but to blow through that and to make this a, make this a year where we ask you to give us one for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.